Well, if you were anywhere near the nation's capital back in January and February, you certainly saw the so-called Freedom Convoy bring a lot of things to a halt. But what was really happening in the, in the convoy itself? Hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada. You're listening to Canadian Intelligence, eh? Podcasts about national security and public safety. So as you know, I don't live in Ottawa anymore. I, I left Ottawa a year and a half ago, so I wasn't uh, inconvenienced by the traffic jams and the air horns and the other things that were going on and on Wellington Street outside of Parliament back in January and February of this year. But it sure got national and international attention. And there's been a lot of things said about the, the, the so-called protest on a variety of issues. It was a real dog's breakfast of, of actors, I think. And there are a lot of people that actually thought this actually constituted an act of terrorism, which I pushed back vehemently against an op-ed piece in the Ottawa Citizen back in February. But it seems like a lot of people who are commenting on what happened uh, didn't actually have any firsthand experience of the people who were there. In other words, didn't take the time to actually talk to them. Well, I'm really pleased to have uh, on the show today someone who did that, who did spend some time talking to the people who are gathered in Ottawa. His name is Andrew Lawton. He's a broadcaster and columnist. I'm very proud to say that until 2018, he hosted his, his eponymous Andrew Lawton show on 980 CFPL in London, my hometown. And he's, he's come up with a new book, which I'll put a link to in the notes, called The Freedom Convoy, The Inside Story of Three Weeks That Shook the World. Andrew, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Hey, it's good to talk to you, Phil. Thanks for having me on. So, so you know, we're already into almost July here, Andrew. Can you remind my listeners a little bit about what actually transpired in January and February of this year in Ottawa? What what engendered this whole uh, descent on, into Ottawa and the, the you know the traffic jams and the inconvenience that took place in the in in wintertime of all times in the nation's capital? Well, it's a tough question because even when it was happening, people couldn't agree on what was happening. And that's why one of the chapters in the book is called Dueling Narratives. And it <laughs> speaks to how this thing was like a Rorschach test in a lot of ways where people could look at it and draw their own conclusions based on, on the same set of facts. But at its core, and I've tried to really go back to the very genesis of it in the book. It was sparked by the Trudeau government's imposition of a vaccine mandate for cross-border truckers who had been right, immune that, yeah. as essential workers from all the COVID restrictions that had been in place for, uh, by this point, about a year and a half prior. And it ballooned from there into this really grassroots and organic movement around this idea of freedom against vaccine mandates, against vaccine passports, uh, broadly against Justin Trudeau and, and Justin Trudeau's government. And, you know, it came together in very short order within the span of a few weeks, really. And all of a sudden, these 18 wheelers and other four wheelers, as they call them, so sedans that were just sympathizing, were coming at Ottawa from all directions, arriving on, I think it was it was a Saturday, I think it was January 23rd. Mm -hmm. You know, they were prepared to stay there until the vaccine mandates were gone. Ended up being not quite that long, but uh, they did last three weeks. So... How organized, you call it sort of a grassroots movement, Andrew, and there are allegations that the, you know, this was carefully planned. Is that not a coincidence that a lot of people compared this to the January 6th, uh, you know, Capitol riot down in Washington? How much organization was behind this? And how much was truly just like a sort of a almost random rising up of people who had a, a dog's breakfast of grievances? 
So this is, I think, one of the most fascinating stories of the convoy, because in, in some ways it had like as much organization as you'd see going towards the big Canada Day festivities in Ottawa. And in other cases, there was no organization at all. And, and some of the organizers I interviewed for the book admit as much. They had layers of management and leadership, and they had a bank account, and they had a corporate structure, and they had lawyers. So they had people that were filling that void of being organizers. But the one thing that they were always very careful to acknowledge in themselves, certainly in my conversations with them, is that they couldn't control the people and they didn't want to control the people. Mm -hmm. And there's one great example in the book that I, I'm happy to share with you where the organizers had been talking to police about trying to ease some of the pressure on the city and particularly the intersection of Rideau and Sussex, which was mm -hmm. being particularly disruptive. It was the reason the Rideau Center shopping mall had closed down for the entirety of it. Right. And the organizers and police had come to an agreement where the organizers were going to try to get all the trucks to move off of that to clear that section so it could reopen. And they went and they talked to all the truckers there and they said, hey, we, we'd like you guys to move and here's why. And this isn't the city cracking down on us. We're trying to buy us a, a little bit more time. And they had finally gotten the truckers on board. They had arranged when it was going to happen. They had stayed, managed it. They had choreographed it. The lawyers, the police, they're all there. And then the city had brought in this bit of equipment to move some of the concrete barricades so the trucks could get onto Wellington Street and actually get closer to Parliament Hill and off Rideau and Sussex. Mm -hmm. And what happened was protesters saw the machine and thought that the city was getting ready to move in on the convoy. So they surrounded the machine and started singing Oh Canada. And it got so large because more people kept showing up that they had to abort this whole operation, even though the organizers and police were on the same team here. And that's just one example of how you can have all the organizers in the world mm -hmm they can't control that grassroots momentum that this thing created. Now, I don't think that aspect of the story was ever, has ever sort of made it known to the Canadian public, Andrew. I think that a lot of people saw it was going on and there was no question. There was frustration by those who lived in the downtown core, you know, with the truck horns going off and the thing and the traffic being blocked. But you're, what you're suggesting to me is that because the organizers did, had not, and did not want to control everyone that was in that movement it really was inevitable in some ways that some people might hijack, if I can use that term, the agenda for their own purposes. Yeah, it certainly was. And this was one of the big stories of the convoy early on, is that you had a lot of people, a lot of groups that really glommed onto this movement, some because they genuinely shared the goals, others because, in the words of some organizers, they saw $10 million. And they saw that, you know, I can get involved and, and get a piece of that fundraising cash. And it was very challenging. And, and I think that it's very difficult to define at, at the same time a movement that is so malleable. But because it wasn't top down in a strict sense, it was why a lot of the early enforcement efforts, I think, failed. Uh, one notable example was trying to cut off the supply of fuel to downtown. Right. Well, all that happened is everyone showed up with jerry cans of fuel and they had more fuel the day after Ottawa police seized their fuel than they did the day before. When the government started going after the money, more people just started showing up with cash. So it was very difficult to turn off the tap on anything, whether it was food, fuel or cash, because more of it would just show up from the ground level. Now, why do you think that the predominant narrative that's, that we've had since the convoy came to Ottawa was that, that this was somehow linked to, oh, a variety of things like right-wing extremism 
or people, there was even talk that people wanted to overthrow the government, ask the governor general to, you know, get rid of the Trudeau government. Why, why is it that that narrative has been dominant since the convoy, you know, this is six months ago now. Why is that the, the dominant narrative that most Canadians are hearing about? There's a lot. I mean, Canada has this tendency to import American narratives all the time. I mean, when that U.S. Supreme Court draft opinion on Roe v. Wade was leaked, all of a sudden Canada, which has an entirely different structure of abortion laws, had a prime minister that was announcing more abortion access. When there's a mass shooting in the U.S., we get gun control measures in Canada. So I think we tend to be very responsive. It's in our DNA. So the January 6th narrative is one that was very easy for people to replicate when they see a group that is largely and loosely conservative. And I, and I, I say that with some hesitation because there was a lot more philosophical diversity in the protest than people might think, but they see a movement that is uh, going after an elected government that is generally speaking on the right or associated with the right. And, and I think that's where the, that's where it sort of ends. And, and there was an interesting missive I got a hold of when I was researching this, where and it was published publicly, so I shouldn't say that it was that difficult to find. But some of the organizers were telling their people, even if someone invites you into a government building, don't go, mm-hmm. because they were so terrified of that narrative dismantling and delegitimizing the convoy. They said, even if you're invited, someone opens the door, says, "Come on into the House of Commons or whatever," don't go. So there was a bit of paranoia there. In the excerpt that I read, Andrew, in the National Post on the weekend, uh, there you make a, a couple references to allegations that people were involved in arson, that they were involved in desecrating the Terry Fox statue, the National War Memorial. Why do you think those types of stories gained as much credence as they did? Because you you do your job to unpack what actually happened at the time. Why was it that the these these dastardly people are coming to Ottawa and, you know, my God, they're desecrating Terry Fox, of all things, the National Cenotaph. Why was it that that narrative that dominated? You know, it's tough because I go to the media bias angle. That that was what I saw in this. I saw before the convoy got to Ottawa, there were a lot of stories that seemed to have already been written before anything happened. And they were setting this narrative of having a, oh, for whatever, you know, like a January 6th incident or some violent insurrection or some uh, something that was akin to terrorism and all of that. So I think that people had to fill in the blanks and mm-hmm. find the evidence to support the conclusion and if you were playing that game, you have to just grab what's there. You have to just grab what's there. And and that first weekend, anyone that wanted to support the convoy saw people having a good time. They're dancing. They're mask-free. They're living their best life. People that didn't like it have to sort of latch on to the, these little incidents. And some of them were blown out of proportion wildly. I mean, the Terry Fox statue was an example. I mean, would I go up and put something on a Terry Fox statue? No. But it was a Canadian flag and a sign that were just as easily removed as they were put on. So I, mm-hmm. I felt that did get overblown. And even the situation with the flags, like the Nazi flag and a Confederate flag, these were most forcefully rebuked by the people in the convoy themselves. So they certainly happened. We don't know who the people were or what their motivations were. But we do know that they were outliers even in the group they were in. So so extrapolating that they were representative of this movement, I, I think was always weak, but to a lot of people, that was what they did. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds to me like a lot of people drew conclusions without any data, which as a former intelligence analyst is a very, very bad thing to do. I'd fire you if you came in with the conclusions before you had the data. And it's funny, I was thinking, Andrew, when you talked about the, the government's tendency to follow the U.S. line, there's a great piece in the Beaverton. I don't know if you ever read the Beaverton uh, a few days ago, but exactly that, that the Trudeau government waits to, what, to see what happens to the United States before it decides to do something here, which is completely irrelevant. Let's move on to the Emergency Act. Andrew, so you know, of course, that you know, is it in February the uh, the Trudeau government decided to invoke the Emergency Act? As I've been reminding people, this really is sort of the most recent version of the old War Measures Act, which was last invoked during the October crisis in 1970 during the FLQ killing of people in Quebec. Of course, there were hearings now on the Hill about whether or not the invocation of the act was justified. There are some allegations that the Public Safety Minister Mendocino. Uh, lied about having been asked by Ottawa police and the RCMP to invoke the act. So what are your views on that whole decision by the Trudeau government to bring in, which is faced as a very draconian piece of legislation, which really tramples on you know, very fundamental rights under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada. How do you view this now looking back a couple of months? Was the invocation of the Emergency Act necessary? And uh, maybe if you can speculate, uh, why do you think it was done? If the emerge, I mean, there are two things there, Phil. I mean, the Emergencies Act, we saw this expose a fatal flaw in it, which is that even though the act is crafted in a way that says it respects the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which the War Measures Act never did and, and never pretended to. I mean, obviously, the, the charter didn't exist until right. 82. Right. But but the, the idea was that the rule of law was suspended under the War Measures Act and the Emergencies Act drafters tried to say it wouldn't be. But we saw that that is purely a suggestion because the police enforcing the Emergencies Act and upholding the Emergencies Act were denying people the right to peacefully assemble because the the act uh, in the orders under the act says that anyone who has a lawful purpose for being in downtown Ottawa can go there. Yet police were threatening with arrest anyone who was walking down the street of Ottawa, whether they had a vehicle or not. So the constitutional right to free assembly was not being upheld. So right there, there's an issue in the wording of the act and the application of it. But looking to the specifics of this case, a lot of people point to the border situations, which I don't delve as much into in the book for for two reasons. One of them is that they weren't actually being stage managed or choreographed in any way by the convoy organizers in Ottawa. They were their own organic efforts that arose certainly in connection to and inspired by what was happening in Ottawa, but they weren't part of the GoFundMe campaign. They weren't part of what Tamara Leach and Chris Barber and Benjamin Dichter and these other organizers were doing. And secondly, even if you did think that those things warranted significant intervention, the Coots blockade, the Windsor blockade, the Thunder or the Emerson Manitoba blockade, the Blue Water Bridge and Sarnia, they were all dismantled or Mm -hmm. about to be dismantled without the Emergencies Act. So the idea that there were more powers needed by anyone to deal with that simply wasn't the case. So I'm going to go on a limb, Andrew, and say that based on what you have spoken with people about it, perhaps even your own personal opinion. You do not feel that the government was, in fact, had a good justification for using that particular piece of legislation in February of, of this year. No, I don't. And I don't know the why. Maybe it was because they needed the cover to go after the money, because that was the one thing that they couldn't really do without it. But whatever the reason was, I I think it was very thin. And I still to this day have not seen the evidence supporting the bona fide public order emergency the government claimed was there. 
Okay. So we've talked about how, you know, you had the organizers of the event, you had some financing, you had some GoFundMe. So there was some level of organization, but there were some other people that showed up and who were not part of the original idea. You may be aware that also the uh, Integrated Terrorism Assessment Center, ITAC, which of course is part of CSIS or is housed within CSIS, they did provide the government with a report that they were concerned. There was some intelligence, some some information suggesting that maybe some people who were a little more worrisome. So people who truly were part of the far-right extremism movements or whatever you want to call it here in Canada may in fact show up in Ottawa. And when those people show up, you're never quite sure what goes on. In your research and talking to the participants, Andrew, did you get any kind of information on whether they were, they were concerned about having their cause tainted by these hangers-on that at the end of the day may in fact have entertained the possibility of using violence to make their point? Certainly it was a concern. I mean, the most notable example, and I'm not suggesting he was violent, but he was very much a problem figure in the convoy, was Pat King, who's this Alberta live streamer who has some uh, very you know, some very challenging comments he's made, if I can be charitable there, uh, about things that cast him and I think cast people associated with him in a bad light. And he was a liability from a public relations perspective. Again, I'm not saying a legal perspective, Mm -hmm. but the convoy organizers told him to go home very early on. Now, I mean, to go back to the media bias point, they didn't stop the media from holding him up as sort of the poster boy of the convoy and even later on as well. I mean, there were examples of of people that were sidelined when people thought they might've been a bit kooky or a bit wacky. I never learned of anyone that organizers encountered in their midst who was violent that they had to deal with. But I think the challenge was they didn't know who was actually there. They didn't know who was on the streets. They didn't know who was in the trucks. They didn't have a membership list or a registration list. So there was always the potential that anyone could show up. I don't know how heavily that weighed on them, though, but I, I'm not aware of any specific incidents they were aware of. Certainly, I guess for my listeners, just a reminder, there were no serious acts of violence that occurred at any point during the January and February time when the convoy was in Canada, or sorry, in Ottawa. And so even if, and, and it, you know, this is why you want intelligence services in the first place to do their investigations to say, hey, this is what our intelligence is showing us. We're advising you, warning you of the possibility that people who may, in fact, be a little more uh, extreme in their views might show up. But at the end of the day, nothing actually happened. So, Andrew, we, we've heard more recently that, uh, of course, Canada Day is coming up in a week's time. This is our national holiday, July the 1st, um, that, in fact, there may be a repeat uh, of the Freedom Convoy here in Ottawa. Uh, not exactly sure where it's going to happen. There's been some talk about Confederation Park, which is a couple blocks sort of south of Wellington on Elgin Street, and uh, there's going to be a festival there, and, and some of the festival organizers are worried about the Freedom Convoy showing up again. What do you think is going to happen on July the 1st in Ottawa? It's tough to say. I, I've had the view, I, I used this in another interview, and I, I kind of like the metaphor, so I'll use it again here if you don't mind me repurposing material, that I, I think the convoy may be like Woodstock, the big conference, uh, the big concert in the cities that people in the 60s that people tried to recreate, they tried to do anniversaries of it, but you could never quite recapture the essence of the first Woodstock, which just came about at the right place and the right, right time and, and really was irreplicable. And I think the same thing is probably true here. You can certainly have hallmarks of it. And a lot of the same people that were involved in the first Freedom Convoy are coming back in the summer. You've got James Topp, a Canadian Armed Forces veteran who literally marched from Vancouver to Ottawa to protest against vaccine mandates, who's arrived, I think, uh, the other day. And he's going to officially arrive 
just before Canada Day. But I, I think ultimately these people just want to have a good time. They, they really built a sense of community around the first Freedom Convoy, even if it was orig- originally created because of a protest and they've had these little events around communities especially in southwestern ontario also up in the golden triangle area in ontario and i think a lot of them just really want to not necessarily move on from the relationships they had there and and again that may be a an overly naive perspective i'm not going to say that something unseemly is impossible because you never know what's going to happen when when tensions are high and the weather is hot and all of that but I, I do think that they really just want to get together and, and recapture a bit of the fun that they had in February, perhaps with a bit nicer weather. <laughs> it should be a little nicer in July 1st than it is in January in Ottawa, that's for sure. I mean, I was the- pepper sprayed, but I would take that over the minus 30 degree weather from covering <laughs> the convoy. Building on that a little bit, Andrew, I, I, I'm curious as to where you think the Freedom Convoy phenomenon goes from here. So from a COVID perspective, of course, a lot of the mandates uh, have been taken away. People aren't masking as nearly as much as they as they as they have been. Although there's concerns about maybe a new a new wave coming in 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 the in the late fall early winter, uh, the Trudeau government is equally as unpopular today as it was there. I mean, I don't, know, I don't know how many of the F dot 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 Trudeau signs you've seen in your your comings and goings. I see some even up at the cot my cottage near Barry's Bay. There's a lot of uh, discontent with the Trudeau government. Uh, a minority government, which is in power largely because of the deal that struck with the NDP. So there seems to be a lot of anger still that is milling about the, the government and what's happening. Probably the, the, the downturn in the economy is not going to help. And inflation rising certainly isn't going to be a, a feather in the, in the Trudeau government's cap. Do you, again, this is purely speculative. I'm not asking you to check your crystal ball. But do you see these events moving forward? as potentially more fodder for a freedom convoy like I don't want to if I want to call it a, an event but does this give more oxygen to that that feeling as we're going forward it, it certainly does and, and I mean whether it would take the form of a convoy or not I, I don't know but certainly large protests one thing I've heard from a lot of people over the last couple of months in particular even people that you know, they got fully vaccinated, they've gone along with the restrictions, they're not COVID deniers, they wore their masks, they, they just got sick and tired of yeah. it. And compliance with these things just kept getting slower and lower and lower. And I think a lot of people, even those who weren't convoy supporters or protesters, just wouldn't go along with another wave of restrictions in, in mm-hmm. the fall. And I mean, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm overly optimistic, but one thing, interestingly enough, when the government announced it, its quote-unquote suspension of the vaccine mandate for air and rail travel last week, they also said that they were reevaluating their definition of fully vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So that could come back or some other form of restriction with a requirement to be triple vaxxed or right. quadruple vaxxed if you want to do these things. And, and something like that would be very different for people. Because remember, when most vaccine mandates were put in place, you had 85 to 90 percent of the population that were fully vaccinated at right. the time with two right. doses. If you all of a sudden say that triple vaccination is required, your fully vaccinated goes down to, I think, like 55 percent. Yeah, or I've heard that too. Yeah. Of the population. So you're making a much bigger group against you than you were with the initial round of restrictions. And and I think that alone sets a very dangerous, uh, a very dangerous set of facts for the government if they're trying to prevent a protest. 
One last question, Andrew, again, in the same vein. How much of this, okay, we, we knew it was tied to the, as you said, the organizers were upset about the vac- vaccination mandates for cross-border truckers at the time, and it, it morphed into something a little wider than that. How much of this do you think is linked to just a general fatigue with the current government? So I've been reading lately that on average, most Canadian governments tend to run out of gas around the 10-year mark. You know, they've had a couple of a couple of terms in parliament. And by the 10 years, you know, the run of the run of ideas, people are just tired of them. They want to change kind of thing. And in Canadian history, we tend to get that. Like, I think only McDonald and Laurier were the only two that really prospered more than, than 10 years in office. Can you speculate? Again, I'm asking you to, to you know, maybe give you your thoughts. How, how much of this is, is also tied to, you know what, been there, done that. It's time for a change. We got rid of the Conservatives in 2015, brought in the Liberals. The next election is not due to 2025. That'll mark the 10-year mark of Trudeau in power. How much of that is that we just need to go on and, and, and try something new? Against my better judgment, I have to also acknowledge uh, William Lyon Mackenzie King in that, by the way. Okay, my apologies. <laughs> yes, right. Over um, a longer period of time, actually, from the, from, the, from the end of the First World War and then a hiatus yeah. and back in the 1930s and 40s. Yeah, I think he's the record holder, although it was an interrupted uh, streak. Um <laughs> You know, I, you may be right. I mean, I, I've talked to just anecdotally people that I, I know who have organized conferences this summer, and every conference has record level of attendance because after two years of no events, people will go to absolutely anything right now. So <laughs> uh, some protests, I, I think, have just been an excuse to get together, which uh, is true of a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests in, in 2020, probably the Freedom Convoy this year as well. There is a, a general fatigue and, and frustration with the government for sure. And I, I think the question will be, from a survivability perspective, whether that fatigue has penetrated the liberal base Mm -hmm. or the liberal caucus. I mean, there were only a couple of holdouts. Well, actually, no holdouts. All the liberal MPs voted for the Emergencies Act. There were only a couple that spoke out against it. One of Mm -hmm. them, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith said, yeah, I don't like this, but it's a confidence vote, so I have to vote for it. You had uh, Joel Lightbound from Quebec who had criticized his government's vaccine mandates and COVID file. Trudeau has had for much of his time in office, almost the entirety of it, an ironclad grip over his caucus. If that starts to fracture, it's certainly something that I think from which we can extrapolate a broader uh, fatigue or perhaps even something more forceful than that from liberal voters that have always had a a really strong connection with the Trudeau brand. Mm -hmm. If that's gone, it's not going to spell anything good for Trudeau and the liberals in the next election. And I've certainly been reading more and more on a variety of platforms. So not just what we would say right of center platforms that say, you know, really it, that that fatigue is there and it is time for a change. So, Andrew, the, the book is coming out soon, I believe. Can you give my listeners a, an idea as to where they can get it from? Yeah, Friday, June 24th. It's the Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. It is available on Amazon, where I am quite tickled to see it is a bestseller. Now, we, we got number, number two. We haven't gotten to number one yet. So <laughs> that's the goal for, for next week. And also, uh, your local bookstore should hopefully have a copy available as well. Well, I'm certainly jealous because I never got to number one on Amazon with my books, Andrew. So congratulations on the pre-sales. Well, I'll have you on my podcast next time. I don't know if that'll actually get you anywhere, but we'll try. <laughs> we'll see. Listen, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. It's, uh, it was a fascinating conversation on an issue that was, as most things are in life, much more complex than it's, than it's usually presented. I think there are a lot of moving parts to this, and I, I'm looking forward to reading your book to see uh, to see what you know, somebody who actually talks to these people as opposed to drew conclusions in advance. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Hey, thank you, Phil. My pleasure. 
that was my, my chat with Andrew Lawton, the, the author of a new book on the Freedom Convoy. I'd love to hear you what you thought of our conversation. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like the content, want to get free of charge podcasts and blogs, go to my website, borealisthreatenrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. You can also find a link there to my latest book, The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to the Present. Self-published, you can get it there. Signed copy, of course. Love to hear your feedback. I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, take care.